Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's event on the primacy of sanctions and assessment of U.S. sanctions on Russia. My name is Will Pomeranz, and I'm Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute. I want to thank everyone for joining us today for this timely event. Uh, today, we are joined by three uh, leading figures uh, who deal with Russia. Uh, we're joined by Ambassador Thomas Pickering, uh, Daniel Ahn, and Randy Levinas for a multifaceted conversation on the effectiveness of sanctions. Um, I will introduce everyone individually, but before we get started, I'd like to remind you to stay up to date with upcoming events and publications on our website, as well as our podcast, Canon X, and our newest podcast, The Russia File. Uh, you can also find our latest analysis of events in Russia and the region uh, on our website as well. Um, today, we're going to have three speakers, uh, but we will open it up for questions after our speakers have uh, gone, gone over their presentations. Uh, I ask that you submit questions via email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org or via Twitter at Kennan Institute or on our Facebook page, and then we will address these questions uh, in our uh, Q&A. But our first speaker today is Ambassador Thomas R. Pickering who is vice chairman of Hills and Company, where he has worked since December 2006 uh, in a extremely distinguished diplomatic career spanning five decades. Uh, he has served as US ambassador and representative to the United Nations, Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs to the Russian Federation, and ambassador to Russia, India, Israel, and several other nations as well. Uh, he is a distinguished senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, but we're very pleased to welcome Ambassador Thomas Pickering, Daniel Ahn, and Randy Levinas here. Okay, so I've now done three into two introductions. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to do a third. Uh, I'm going to rely on on, on my earlier present, uh, earlier discussion of the panelists, and it is a very distinguished panel, so I'm sure everyone knows who everybody is anyway. So without I will turn it over to Thomas Pickering. Ambassador, the floor is yours. Thank you, Will, very much, and delight to be with you this morning or this afternoon right now. Um, I want to do two things. I want to look at sanctions on Russia fairly quickly, fairly cursorily, in terms of some conclusions and some remarks about effects and impact, and then look a little more broadly at sanctions in general as a tool of diplomacy and foreign policy, and some of the ups and downs of that, much of which I think reflected in the Russian case study as we look at it. But I know that uh, Randy and Daniel will have uh, perhaps more to say about the Russia side. And, and let me begin with a very quick conclusion. In general, sanctions ain't worked with Russia. It's a huge country, great resilience, lots of resources, weak economy, but never so weak that it in one way or another has been allowed to have that weakness and public disturbance at it overcome the you know, political hard line of Mr. Putin and his very tight and I think strong grip on most aspects of Russian life, uh, but particularly Russian political life as it relates to the issues. All sanctions have objects and over the history of our relationship both with the Soviet Union and Russia, we have used them for different purposes, often 
with very little, I think, significant effect, in part because our expectations with respect to sanctions were that they would be principled, useful leverage to achieve a particularly, uh, I think, important objective, either of the United States and its friends and allies, or of the international community in general when it comes to things like human rights and liberty and so on. And indeed, in fact, the OSCE negotiations on Helsinki are an interesting example. Uh, and I think, Mark, what I would uh, want to tell you is a significant element of sanctions and how they can deal uh, with problems. Uh, first and foremost, I think sanctions come in a variety of <clears throat> guises and get-ups. Uh, we tend almost immediately to think of economic sanctions and uh, they of course involve things like denials of trade, denials of access, denials of travel and so on. And the bulk of them uh, come either as general international sanctions uh, or particular unilateral or regional sanctions Russia, of course, has the great advantage of being a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, the principal instrument for the levying of general sanctions, and it has the veto. So it indeed has the capability and the willingness to assure that uh, efforts to turn uh, either regional or individual problems into international sanctions pressure with Russia fail. Uh, and I think that that case is well demonstrated. A second piece is clearly how in what way you go about achieving your objective. Uh, sanctions, military pressure, political isolation, all of those efforts and come in many guises uh, are designed to try to achieve objectives as I noted a while ago, often very difficult ones. And certainly Ukraine and Crimea foremost among those in terms of one way or another uh, moving uh, Russia these days in positive ways on those situations. It is also true in my view, uh, not universally and always, but it helps a great deal uh, in a question of sanctions, especially with Russia, to have a viable negotiating process ongoing. One in which you can use the capacity of uh, diplomatic give and take uh, to take the sanctions leverage uh, into the room with you, so to speak, in order to find a way uh, to help confect uh, an answer to the problem. It means that those who trust sanctions to achieve regime change, or in fact, one way or another, unilateral capitulation by the other side, are often, if not universally, reaching beyond what is likely realistic or possible um, under almost any circumstance, short of uh, <clears throat> the use of military force to achieve unconditional surrender and a complete victory, things that don't happen anymore. Uh, and so as a result, uh, that opportunity to use a creative negotiating process to translate sanctions into something useful is very important. Just a, a few words about US sanctions in particular. 
uh, and those on Russia. Uh, sanctions have become <clears throat> the favorite weapon of choice of the American Congress to assure its firm participation in foreign affairs in the country. And it often reflects intensive lobbying by parties in one way or another seeking uh, ways to force the result of an issue. And the Congress uh, is often able to go along with those in part because uh, those lobbying represent votes and political contributions in the United States. But it also means uh, that the United States becomes wedded to sanctions in almost an emotional manner. Uh, and so we are rather adept at putting sanctions on and terribly reluctant to take them off. So in effect, we have half of a negotiating leverage, the sanctions, but not the other half of being able to take them off reasonably well as part of a political settlement. Congress often wants to obviously gainsay the political settlement to assure its objectives are met. Uh, and this often leads to competition with the executive branch. Uh, and in my view, were the sanctions to be useful in leveraging a negotiation, say, of Ukraine or Crimea, hard as that seems now, I think the Congress would be very reluctant to accept, accept anything that was not universal success. And so we have a difficult problem in that regard with dealing with them. Uh, but the proliferation of sanctions now, you have to look at only Iran to give you a great sense of how that's come. And Iran has in particular, uh, and the Trump administration at the moment, eluded or excluded uh, the ability to turn those sanctions into a negotiated solution, perhaps under Biden with the now seemingly fairly widely advertised view that both the US and Iran uh, want to return to the nuclear agreement, it will be a little easier, but it is a fraught question. Uh, were we that close in dealing with the Russia problem? Uh, final point here is that the Minsk group and indeed the Normandy group, uh, which could be the useful negotiating mechanisms have in one way or another, either through failure of full participation certainly the lack of leverage, uh, including the sanctions that have been put on, uh, and Russian resilience on the other side, uh, meant in fact that we have once again with sanctions entered into something that I have turned Nordic track diplomacy. Uh, we can run faster and faster, but we get exactly into the same place that we started out in, in Nordic track diplomacy. And unfortunately, this is a clear example of that. So I'm discouraged. I'm not optimistic. I wish I could do better uh, in giving you something that held out just some scintillas of hope that the sanctions approach to the Russia problems uh, was in itself self-contained and serious enough to be successful, but I fear not. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador Pickering, uh, for uh, laying out the issues. We're next going to turn to Daniel Ahn, who is Managing Director and Chief U.S. Economist and Head of Markets 360 uh, North America at BNP Paribas in New York. Uh, until 2018, he was the Chief Economist at the U.S. Department of State, where he uh, advised the Secretary of State and Senior Principals 
on a range of economic and security topics. Uh, he has worked in, as a chief economist at Citibank and, and other institutions as well. Uh, he has received both the Superior Honor Award and the Meritorious Honor Award for his work on the economics of national security. Uh, Daniel uh, is now going to talk, uh, pick up on uh, Ambassador Pickering's uh, presentation and is going to focus on the economic impact of sanctions against Russia. Daniel, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Will. And uh, it's a real pleasure and honor to be here. Um, I am fully conscious of just how challenging it's going to be to uh, uh, to follow on uh, with uh, on, on Ambassador Pickering, but I hope I will uh, do my best to, to provide uh, a, a slightly different um, approach uh, to uh, how to uh, how to think about sanctions um, and using again Russia more as a case study. So just stepping back a bit, of course, um, as Ambassador Pickering mentioned, um, there's been um, considerable debate and controversy over the efficacy of sanctions. Have they worked or not? Uh, you know, U.S. officials have generally said that uh, you know they have imposed heavy but targeted economic costs upon the Russian economy. Um, some even say that it has deterred the Kremlin from further malign behavior. Uh, but then critics, of course, uh, point to the resilience of the Putin regime uh, and the continued uh, projection of power interference abroad, even as recently as as the U.S. elections, uh, um, which the sanctions have have prevent have have failed uh, to to prevent. So um, where, where, how should we think about uh, kind of all of this? Uh, well, first of all, um, I would like to uh, uh, try and answer the simple question of what has the economic cost um, on Russia actually been? Um, when I was serving at the State Department and uh, I got, we got this very question uh, from uh, the embassy uh, in, in Moscow under Ambassador Huntsman at the time, we realized there was actually no really good answer um, uh, to this. And as economists, uh, we wanted to actually come to some sort of concrete answer. The challenge um, actually of answering this is because the nature of sanctions has changed um, over the last uh, a couple of decades. Prior to the 1990s, most of the sanctions imposed both by the US and by the UN have been macroeconomic countrywide embargo uh, type sanctions. So, and so you could use macroeconomic data uh, to try and uh, make an estimate as to its, its impact. But since basically 9-11, uh, uh, we have seen the rise of this targeted or microeconomic sanctions uh, that are focused not upon an entire economy as a whole, but rather upon specific actors or entities um, or even transactions uh, uh, to, uh, to achieve a more targeted uh, kind of economic impact. Um, I, uh, you know, we uh, in the uh, Office of the Chief Economist of State argued that um, the changing nature of this uh, uh, sanctions policy means that uh, the economic approach to assessing these also needs to change away from using macroeconomic data and toward using microeconomic firm and individual level data. And so uh, what I will be largely talking about today are some of the findings uh, from a recently published um, academic paper uh, with my co-author, uh, Professor Rod Ludema of Georgetown University, where we tried to do this very thing. We tried to actually track 
uh, the economic health and performance of millions of uh, individuals and companies uh, that have uh, been affected or not affected by the sanctions uh, to try and get a statistically robust estimate um, of the impact. So the short answer is yes, um, targeted sanctions have indeed had um, a big statistically negative impact upon the targets. Uh, uh, we're talking about uh, um, a, a loss of a quarter of their operating revenue, um, for example. So taken all together, um, the observed drop uh, in Russian um, and generally targeted uh, uh, Russian uh, corporate performance, which you know in theory should all add up to the Russian GDP, um, is about 95 billion US dollars since 2014, or that's about 4.2% of Russia's pre-sanctions uh, 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 2013 uh, uh, GDP level. And we also find uh, that they do appear to be quote unquote smart uh, in the sense that they do seem to concentrate economic harm upon the targets, at least relative to their non-targeted peers. But the data actually is rich enough to show a lot of other really interesting things. And I will try and highlight some of them uh, 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 today. Um, first of all, uh, we document how some of the target targeting of the sanctions seems to have been deflected. Um, uh, in effect, what the Russian government has done is it has shielded some of these strategically valuable uh, sanctioned companies, primarily in the defense and in the technology space, uh, by diverting resources in the form of tax breaks or uh, government contracts and procurement or even direct capital injections uh, to try and mitigate the impact of the sanctions. And this shielding behavior, it doesn't, it's, it's not a free lunch, uh, but what it does is it uh, migrates the economic harm away from the individual target and upon the Russian regime uh, or, or even more broadly upon the Russian taxpayer um, uh, or, uh, or, or uh, the Russian uh, households. Uh, um, so if you add this all up, um, it's actually not 4.2% of GDP, it's actually 8% of GDP um, uh, if you include uh, the shielding that the Russian government has tried to do um, to protect some of their more sensitive targets over others. So 8% of GDP is not anything to sneeze at. Um, it is a big number. Um, it, in, in particular, it's particularly remarkable given that um, uh, the way in which the sanctions have, have tried to work, and I'm sure Randy is going to talk more about this, uh, but uh, uh, we found it also remarkable uh, that uh, you know, when you, when you sanction a particular entity, what you're doing is you are cutting it off from both the ability to export its uh, uh, services to Western markets, but also to import uh, things uh, from, from the West. But given the fact that Russia's primary exports to the West um, were fossil fuels, oil and gas, which are fungible and can be redirected and they're often, they were not as severely sanctioned um, as, uh, uh, as others, it really has been the import channel um, by which these sanctions have bitten, um, we find that uh, despite the fact that Western services inputs into the Russian economy account for less than 1% of Russia's gross value added in its production function, um, it has had this 8% impact upon GDP and every 1% increase in dependency upon a Russian company to the Western services has a seven fold increase uh, upon the impact of the sanctions upon that firm. 
So really what has happened is by denying key Western financial, legal, technological, and other services uh, that may account for a relatively small amount of value added, but are actually critical for the operations um, of said company, we have had an outside, outsized impact um, upon, upon the Russian economy um, and, and upon, upon these actors. Um, but of course, the Russian government has not uh, stood still uh, uh, in all of this. Um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it has uh, deliberately gone out to try and shield some of these uh, targets. Uh, uh, but it also um, has made steps to try and de decouple from the Western economy and reduce dependence upon Western uh, uh, upon Western services. Uh, now, Russian corporates are much less reliant upon Western capital services. Um, they have built up uh, foreign reserves. Um, they have built up macroeconomic uh, resiliencies, uh, um, and so the. Um, we are now at the point of clear diminishing returns to how much more uh, sanctions can actually do uh, to, to harm um, uh, uh, any particular target. Uh, um, and we also need to recognize, and I'm sure um, Ambassador Pickering and, and, and uh, uh, Mrs. Levinas will also mention more about this, um, but while we have imposed, um, uh, imposed uh, significant costs upon the Russian economy as a whole, we should also recognize what has happened to Russia's internal political economy. Um, I think there was some hope that these sanctions would somehow drive a wedge between the Putin regime and upon the Russian oligarchs. Uh, um, this, is not, this has not really happened at all. If anything, by controlling the ability to decide who to, uh, you know, who to shield and who not to shield, uh, um, uh, the Russian regime has tightened and consolidated its hold over critical sectors of the economy, while at the same time diverting all of the costs of the of the um, of the sanctions and the shielding again onto Russian taxpayers or Russian households uh, in the form of uh, reduced pension funds, reduced sovereign wealth funds, uh, and higher inflation. So um, even after adjusting for low, lower oil prices and the recent uh, uh, pandemic uh, and so on, average Russians today are now much poorer than they otherwise would have been. They are less connected to the West. Uh, um, there's uh, uh, much fewer ordinary contacts between Russians, uh, uh, ordinary Russians and, and Americans. I'm not sure this is exactly what um, uh, the stated goal of all of the sanctions policy uh, was supposed to be. So I think this is a, a, an excellent time actually to hold this kind of event uh, as uh, um, not just uh, uh, the incoming uh, Biden administration, but also Congress uh, thinks about uh, how to, uh, uh, about its Russia policy um, uh, in, in the next four years, uh, uh, whether sanctions uh, uh, should play as central a role as it, as it once did, um, or whether we have now reached the point of diminishing returns and we should also be thinking about uh, not just the unintended consequences, but also the medium term costs um, associated with, with sanctions over usage. Um, I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, a reminder, I know my introductory remarks got a little cut off, but uh, if you want to submit a question, please submit it by email to Kenan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Kenan Institute, or on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when sending your questions. Uh, we'll now turn to our final speaker, Randy Levinas. Uh, she is the Executive Vice President and COO at the U.S.-Russian Business Council. In this role, she oversees the day-to-day -day management of the U.S.-RBC, 
and counsels corporate members on strategies to achieve their commercial objectives in Russia and the United States. Uh, she worked, uh, she's, she also leads the council's government relations portfolio, and she played a leading role in the negotiations on Russia's accession to the World Trade Organization and served as the executive director of the Coalition for U.S.-Russian Trade. Randy, the floor is yours. Thank you, Will, and thank you to the Kennan Institute and to Randy Bregman for helping organize today's panel. It's a real pleasure to be here among this distinguished panel. There's three important points I'd like to underscore today, and it really is not going to surprise you that they're going to focus on the business community impact of sanctions. As we think about the flexibility first of executive branch sanctions, which congressional sanctions don't provide often, that's the first thing that's important to the business community. Also, I think we have to recognize that the US, US business community tends to be collateral damage when it comes to US sanctions policy. And finally, the unintended consequences of sanctions are important. They present uh, long-term challenges, I would argue, for US national economic security and US global competitiveness. Now, I am not suggesting that US business interests should trump or override foreign policy interests, but there are important considerations for policymakers to take into account when they're designing their actions to respond to malign activity. And so for a little bit of history, go back to my PNTR days when Russia was um, trying to uh, do it, was engaged in its negotiations for its accession to the World Trade Organization. Russia was opening its economy to become a part of the rules-based trading system. And that was a good thing. And we were working to take a full advantage for companies, uh, to take advantage of the benefits of that. But in order to do that, we had to remove the 1970s era Jackson-Vanek law. And that imposed sanctions on Russia for denying Jews the right to freely emigrate to the West. It was a trade sanction. It was largely symbolic, but to remove it, we had to convince Congress, first of all, that Russia was indeed a market. Second, that it held considerable potential for US companies and that Russia merited removal from Jackson Vanek. The National Coalitions for Supporting Eurasian Jewry was our partner on this. This group had advocated for Russia's, um, uh, and the imposition of Jackson Vanek on Russia in the first place on the Soviet Union. And we went together to countless meetings on Capitol Hill to explain to members and their staffs why it was important to remove Russia from Jackson Vanek. Russia was actually in compliance with Jackson Vanek and had been in compliance since 1991 at that point but it still took us six years and a massive lift by US companies and trade associations to educate members and staff about why this was important to do. My point is Russia is a tough topic to breach on Capitol Hill and statutory sanctions are not easy to remove once they're enacted. If you move fast forward to 2014 with Russia's incursions into Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, the Obama administration set out a framework for sanctions. And we were told that they were meant to be flexible, scalable, and reversible. 
So understandably, US companies had to halt business with entities designated under this framework. But the unintended consequences of these sanctions soon came to light. So first, I would remind you of the immediate consequences. Credit card companies had to shut down traffic with certain financial institutions in Russia. So ordinary Russians were blocked from buying groceries at the supermarket and purchasing medicines at pharmacies, which the Russians obviously were not very happy about. But there was also a counteraction in the regulatory area. Russia moved forward with a national payment system. This was a domestic payments network with a national credit card, which was something our companies had been pushing back against successfully for a number of years. And it was the first sign that Russia was turning inward. They were viewing economic and commercial policies with a much larger nod towards national security interests. Another unintended consequence came to pass in September of 2016, and there are others, I'm just using these examples, but when the Obama administration designated what it thought was a consulting firm for its involvement in the construction of the Kerch Bridge from mainland Russia to Crimea. Our companies, however, knew this consulting firm as a key regulatory agency, something like our OSHA here in the United States, which gives industrial safety uh, certifications and permissions for companies to do plant modernizations and, and expansions. So we held briefings and meetings across the US government and OFAC issued a general license to enable companies to work with this entity. The point is sanctions are complex and they can be a very blunt instrument. So with statutory sanctions, when you get politics and emotion, as Ambassador Pickering noted, driving Congress's agenda, it's far more difficult to rectify these matters. And Congress doesn't adapt nimbly to new information or to change circumstances. And when the topic is Russia and President Putin, it becomes all the more difficult. 2017 was a watershed year. And that was when Congress moved from providing discretion to, to the president to suddenly forcing the executive's hand with respect to Russia. There was frustration over the lack of leadership on Russia policy. There was clearly a lack of trust and continues to be between Democrats and the president. But there also was bipartisan raw indignation about Russia's moves with respect to violations of territorial and integrity, intervention in, in, in the elections and other areas. So without a hearing or a markup, no opportunity to provide any transparent input into the process, we suddenly learned that there was a massive Russia sanctions bill moving on the floor and it was moving fast. And it was part of, it had just been folded into a North Korea and Iran sanctions bill. The bill, which was CATSA, codified the Obama administration ex executive orders, but it also required the president to impose sweeping new sanctions in finance and energy, defense, intelligence, cyber. And it made Congress the ultimate arbiter as to whether these sanctions would ever be lifted. So, it's not only also sanctions becoming law 
that are problematic. We face a very difficult situation with messaging bills in Congress that are meant to send Russia, for example, messages about and threatens and threats about its global pursuits. And the problem with these bills is twofold. First of all, you're impacting contracts with Russian customers. They want to contract for Russian goods and services that may not, and suddenly they're faced with looking at these bills that are out there and these contracts and these goods and services might not be delivered because of sanctions limitations. And US companies carry the moniker then of becoming unreliable suppliers. Congress can move with lightning speed and when they want to react to Russia's moves on the global stage. And there is no downside for members of Congress to oppose a Russia sanctions bill. So you can get this situation where you have a very poorly drafted messaging bill that can swiftly become law. Again, I'm not suggesting that the United States policymakers should not respond to malign behavior. The issue is how carefully are we crafting our policy? Targeting the individuals and entities that are responsible for making these, taking these actions. We need to take a 360 degree view of the consequences because US companies are getting slammed along the way. Russia has choices for its commercial partners. They hardly missed a beat when the United States sanctioned US companies for participating to, to participate in Arctic, shale and deep water projects. They just turned to China and others. Now, our companies might have the best technologies, but other countries have and companies have technologies that are good enough and that through their usage can be improved. The reality is Russia is part of our company's global supply chains and our companies connect to other markets through Russia, including Eastern Europe. Sanctions also drive Russia and China cl closer together. And China has big plans, for example, with, for its agricultural in, uh, machinery in Russia. They are chomping at the bit to make inroads into the Russian market. That would allow them to test and improve their technologies in Russia, which is a fantastic agricultural market, and then use Russia as a launching pad into, onto the international market, into third countries where they would compete with US companies. Now, from my conversations, US officials, for the most part, don't want to shut US firms completely out of the Russian market. They see value in having US companies, you haven't seen US companies having a, a presence in the Russian market because our companies function as ambassadors to Russia. They are transparent in their business dealings. They show how to operate with good corporate governance policies, and they lead with accountability. They also do tremendous work in the areas of social, corporate social responsibility. Our companies are continuing to set examples for a new generation of, of Russian entrepreneurs and enterprises. Clearly, Russia presents challenges to our policymakers, and our companies understand that they have to manage risk, including the risk of sanctions when, when it comes to Russia. But it really is incumbent on our, on our policymakers, including those in Congress, to consider making sanctions conduct-based and targeted in such a way that they're considering the impact on US 
companies on US national economic interests and our US global competitiveness. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Randy. Again, we're gonna to get to our, to our, our audience in a, in a minute, uh, but if you have questions, you can submit them via email to Kenan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Kenan Institute, or on our Facebook page. And I think the, the kind of unifying theme or one of the unifying questions of all the speakers is the impact of sanctions on traditional diplomatic activity that uh, especially when Congress becomes the institution that puts it into legislation and then it doesn't become a tool for leverage, it becomes an obstacle just for making any sort of changes and working with um, the object of the sanctions. So I guess uh, to Ambassador Pickering and anyone else who wants to jump in, to what extent, what is lost uh, in terms of sanctions when Congress legislates the sanctions, as opposed to having the executive branch enforce the sanctions and having some flexibility and discretion in terms of using these sanctions as leverage? Well, thank you, Will, and it's a, it's a great question. I think that in direct answer to your question, uh, I think there needs to be uh, at least a congressional or legal basis for the levying of sanctions. Uh, without an authority, uh, the president may have very limited capacities to act. I'm not a lawyer and it's not something that I've analyzed in great detail, but it usually seems to me that we need uh, at least a statutory basis for moving. Uh, in the past, that was generally permissive but it often then involved uh, requirements that the Congress participate in some way, either through notice provisions or sometimes by joint resolution of approval or so on, the lifting of sanctions. And as I think Randy made very, very clear, the direct statutory sanctions are in that regard where Congress legislates much of the detail of those sanctions rather than relies on an executive order by the president, something very much a creature of theirs. And presidents are constrained to accept it if they want the objective, and particularly if there is a cross-party support for the sanctions legislation, and which would be sufficient enough to defeat a veto if the president doesn't want it. So there's a lot of give and take in getting there, and I think that horse trading uh, makes some difference. It's also true that uh, United Nations sanctions are negotiated uh, and they're put on in a mandatory way by the Security Council. And to get them off, uh, unless there is an out built into the resolution that puts them in place, uh, an escape hatch or a back door, uh, you've got to go back to the Security Council. Uh, and uh, my view is that very few, if any, Security is leaning forward. So that also raises that question. However, most of those are um, resolutions which uh, can specifically block actions or moves by, by governments. 
Uh, sometimes they're permissive, but if they're mandatory, they're often uh, declaratory and required. Not that, in fact, the tradition in the international community is necessarily very significantly one of everybody leaping into the breach, but there has been quite a strong recognition of participation, particularly by the economic, economically significant countries on some big players. Russia has scared some off, and I think that plays a role. Uh, finally, in the UN system, uh, there is something called Article 50 of the UN Charter, which requires or at least asks states uh, who uh, participate The, the sanctions that are being developed, it's taking a regime that, from my understanding, you know, used for Iran, for example, and then, you know, just dumped on, okay, well, let's just cross out Iran and put Russia in. And you have a very different economy, very different player on the world trade trading scene. Um, so, you know, that's one problem that's lost when you have con congressional sanctions. The other, you know, point I would go back to it is this 360 degree view of really what the impact is um, of uh, on the uh, the sanctions not having um, evidentiary packages all the things that goes through with the, the administration I'm not sure quite sure you know what that real thought process is um, if it's deliberative that's that's great but it's clearly the executive branch has a very clear interagency process and a deliberate process for for determining targets and, and their sanctions the other thing I would mention is and a point that Ambassador Pickering you know I think drove home really well which is the importance of diplomacy Diplomacy and combining sanctions with diplomacy. With the Hill, you have number members of Congress who are statesmanlike and do engage in, in, in diplomacy with their, their colleagues. But really, so many are just focused on short-term political issues and gains. And right now, with the absolute paucity of interparliamentary dialogue, between Russia and the United States. There is no, I think, context for, context for the imposition of the sanctions regimes that are being discussed. And you have very much public statements, but no real back channels like you would with the executive branch in terms of the sanctions you're putting forward. Thanks, Randy. Uh, just, just a quick question then for Daniel. Uh, uh, Besides the, uh, the question about diplomacy, uh, you've talked about the impact of sanctions. Um, and I'm curious how you measure these impacts because in Russia, for example, they've introduced all these different policies from import substitution to you know, various uh, preferences for Russian software that doesn't, doesn't exist anymore. So to what extent do these sanctions have, and, and the unintended consequences, um, have a greater impact than the measurable 
Yeah, uh, thanks, Will. That's a, a really interesting question. Um, and uh, as I think social scientists, we should always be humble about what uh, the profession can and, and, and can't actually do. Uh, um, when it comes to the measurable or quantifiable part, uh, um, I still think it's important uh, and uh, without getting too bogged down in the weeds, uh, what we do is actually very similar basically to like a pharmaceutical drug trial uh, where you have a control group of people who are given a placebo and, and a, and a um, test group of people who are actually given the drug and then you measure uh, the differences uh, in their health afterward. Similarly, what we've done uh, in, this, uh, in this paper uh, is we looked at the sanctioned companies and then we looked at similar companies that operate in the same business sector that have very similar characteristics that weren't sanctioned and we try and look at the difference uh, be between those two. And that's a way for us to control everything else that was happening in the Russian economy, including you know, fluctuations in oil prices and all that stuff. Uh, but as I think uh, um, um, uh, uh, Robert Lucas, uh, uh, the great Chicago economist, once said, uh, uh, once you start thinking about growth, it's hard to, to uh, uh, think about anything else. Uh, uh, I'm sure in the, in the longer term, uh, uh, all of the sh kind of short-term impacts are going to get drowned out by whatever impact this has had upon Russian potential growth um, over the next decades. Now, you know, people have, economists have been quite negative upon, uh, uh, upon long-term from Russian growth for some time due to poor demographics, uh, due to uh, poor te no, technological growth, uh, uh, a unevenly balanced uh, uh, kind of economic base overly focused on you know, natural resource extraction, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, has, uh, has this been accelerated um, by, uh, um, by the decoupling uh, with the West um, or has, uh, uh, you know, uh, any of these import substitution and things like that, uh, that, that Randy also mentioned, uh, um, uh, given, you know, better, uh, uh, better prospects for, for Russian long-term growth. Uh, um, I don't think anyone has um, a perfect answer to that, but certainly history suggests that import substitution is in the grand scheme of things, not a terribly effective and, and long-term successful sort of way to, to plan your economy. Um, but uh, at least, you know, getting back to the U.S. perspective for a moment, uh, um, the more the economy, you know, works to find substitutes to your to your imports uh, and tries to wean itself off of a Western, you know, or U.S. dollar-based financial system, the less we have points of leverage uh, uh, for future sanctions um, to uh, to have any impact um, upon upon these uh, upon these targets. So we should, I think, always be weighing the short-term uh, tactical impact of imposing a sanction upon this company or this transaction versus the longer-term impact um, that uh, this is just going to incentivize uh, uh, your, um, uh, your target uh, to find substitutes or ways to improve their resilience uh, uh, relative to um, uh, relative to uh, 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 to you know, the sanctions tool you, you have, and pretty soon the only uh, the only places that will uh, that will still be uh, having interactions with the West or 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 uh, you know, uh, trying to use say a dollar based financial system are probably people that we may not want to sanction in the first place because they're trying to continue to uh, to you know drive uh, the Russia into a more uh, you know pro Western rule of law kind of system. So.
William, could I ask uh, Daniel a question? Please, Ambassador. I'll be delighted. Yeah, Daniel, I thought your presentation was, was sure. very helpful. Sure, and, and then we'll get to everyone else's questions. And could I just ask him a brief question? Yes, you can, sure. Okay, I thought your presentation was useful and very interesting, and thank you for it. In your effort to struggle with the data, I wondered if you were able to extricate the measurement of growth from what would necessarily be kind of conflicting factors. Uh, the long period of recovery from 2008 and 2009, the heavy dependence on Russia on oil and gas exports, the degree to which fracking and I think Persian Gulf competition in particular with low priced oil had effects on that question or did you rely purely on changes in growth statistics uh, for that r raw measure of uh, sanctions impact? No, it's a great question, Ambassador, and thank you very much for it. I, I'll be happy to uh, to maybe follow up with you offline to provide in a little more detail. Um, but uh, that uh, uh, the concerns that you raised were absolutely critical toward motivating this study. We were we were unhappy with the existing literature that often used growth, uh, uh, kind of gross raw. Uh, 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 measures uh, in which all these other things, whether it was the recovery from 2008, whether it was the fall in oil prices due to the fracking revolution, or whether it was due to general political uncertainty because of the Ukraine situation that didn't have anything to do directly with sanctions, uh, whether all of that was getting conflated uh, uh, with uh, the direct impact of sanctions. So this is why we moved away toward this very big data machine learning kind of uh, millions of, of data points kind of approach uh, where we again looked at here is a Russian company that was sanctioned. Here is a Russian company that's very similar that wasn't sanctioned. Both of them in theory should be moving up and down due to fluctuations in oil prices and general macroeconomic things. But the difference between the two uh, may be capturing um, uh, the impact of the sanctions themselves. Uh, um, and we just isolated out there for as best as we can uh, the sanctions output. And we get actually, interestingly enough, uh, a much bigger number uh, than what some other studies like say the IMF did uh, that tried to use just the macro uh, economic um, approach. So, uh, um, I mean, uh, just expanding this back to uh, an earlier question from Will, um, I believe that if targeted sanctions are gonna to continue to remain um, the, uh, I think Ambassador Pickering, you said it was something like you know, the, the most favored tool or the Swiss army knife of US foreign policy. Um, then uh, uh, as I think Randy mentioned as well, we need a kind of 360 view on this. We need better data on what this actually happens. We need, you know, like the economic equivalent of war planning to actually say, all right, if we sanction this particular target, what, sh what should happen and not just, uh, you know, let's just uh, make unload sanctions because on on Russia or whoever because it feels good and, and it's an easy sell to my domestic political constituents uh, and then I'll just let other people kind of figure out what's the uh, you know what, what are the targets that would fall under under that category I, I do believe that uh, the United States uh, intelligence services and in partnership with US corporates uh, actually have a wealth of data uh, that can be an excellent tool um, to continue to make sanctions a relevant tool for the future, um, but we just need to kind of connect all of the dots together um, uh, to, to make that happen and, and not have this uh, kind of 
um, uh, rather emotional way of approaching the sanctions policy, as you said. Thank you, Daniel. And now I'm going to start getting to the questions uh, that are coming in via email. Again, you can mail your questions, submit the questions via email at canon at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Canon Institute, or on our Facebook page. The first question comes from Stanislav Sansky at the uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And he asks, is it possible to compare the volume size of sanctions for China and Russia? Which country is affected most by sanctions and why? Daniel, do you have uh, any sort of comparative analysis uh, between Russia and, and China sanctions? Uh, it's, it's interesting you, you uh, mentioned that, uh, Will, because um, well, actually, when we first began uh, this whole study, uh, uh, we wanted to actually um, make a, we, we were actually agnostic about which particular country we were, we were trying to study. We wanted to study Russia, we wanted to study China, we wanted to study North Korea, Iran, and so on. Uh, for better or for worse, uh, Russia was where we were able to find uh, the kind of high quality microdata that we needed. Um, to, uh, uh, to, to do this uh, study, we thought, full justice, at least in a, in a declassified or unclassified um, setting. Uh, um, we do have, of course, some, some good data on China. I'm actually working uh, uh, with uh, 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 some more academics uh, uh, to uh, look at China's supply chain data and see uh, what the impact of sanctions and the trade, uh, uh, the trade tensions have had. Uh, but I think the short answer is uh, um, that uh, when it came, when it just comes to the pure number of uh, targets uh, that have been, you know, uh, fallen under either U.S. SDN or SSI kind of designations, uh, um, Russia and Ukraine-related sanctions uh, um, uh, outnumber uh, those that uh, have been listed uh, by China so far. But at the same time, U.S. and China are much more integrated company uh, economies uh, uh, than, than the U.S. and Russia were even before, uh, even before sanctions. Uh, but also that China is working very, very hard to try and you know create substitutes for uh, Western, um, you know, Western uh, professional services, uh, capital services, financial services, technologies, um, uh, etc. And so. Uh, uh, I'm sure the sanctions uh, at first blush uh, might bite harder uh, uh, target by target, um, but uh, uh, in the long term, I suspect that we will reach uh, uh, diminishing returns uh, even more quickly uh, than, than in the case of Russia. Um, and uh, this kind of gets to a, a broader point that I didn't have time earlier to make, uh, uh, which is that uh, all of this discussion on sanctions, I think, is uh, it, it leverages, again, as Randy mentioned, it leverages the U.S. private sector. Um, it leverages the quasi-monopolistic position that um, the U.S. and Western companies have in certain key elements of the production and supply chain. So, you know, it's a great tool um, that uh, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see U.S. policymakers take advantage of uh, in pursuit of U.S. national security ends. Uh, um, but uh, maybe the discussion can not just focus on how to use what leverage and this quasi-monopolist position we have right now, but how do we strengthen that? 
um, uh, how, uh, how can we strengthen this by ensuring that, say, the U.S. dollar remains the, the reserve currency of choice, that U.S. financial institutions and U.S. technology companies, et cetera, they remain the go-to place um, to, to get these, curtain, these key uh, inputs and services, uh, because the more that competitors emerge that are, as Randy mentioned, good enough um, uh, uh, and or, or are almost as good as Western companies, uh, um, the, the less uh, uh, sanctions has actually scope uh, to, to matter at all. Thank you, uh, Daniel. Um, I guess a, a follow-up question to that, though, and this is um, uh, a question about sanctions, the unilateral use of sanctions and the sanctions in combination with their allies. So the unique thing about the Russia sanctions, at least initially, was that they were over that the EU and the U.S. decided to sanction the same industries, roughly. Not exactly, but roughly. And I guess a question to Randy and, 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 so, and, and, and anyone else who wants to jump in is to what extent do sanctions make sense if, if we don't have that buy-in our allies? Uh, do we simply, like countries like Russia, simply play off other countries to solve these problems? Or um, do these sanctions and the kind of what we like to think as the preeminent role in, in services and so forth of the of the West, uh, can they be substituted? Uh, can are there substitutes available? So I guess the kind of crux of the question is: to what extent is do these sanctions have to take place in combination with other countries, and to what extent can they be unilateral? Yeah, and, and well, I think that goes straight to the point of leverage and in terms of impact. I mean, to the extent that they actually do have impact, which I think we've today we've questioned, um, at least in terms from the, the impact on um, changing behavior, which is presumably the, the, the purpose of, of a lot of these sanctions. And clearly, the United States, to your point, was working well with um, the Europeans and others initially in the design of these sanctioned regimes, not identical, but pursuing similar targets and, and working in concert. That all changed. Again, you go back to 2017 with CATSA and the, you know, a law which actually placed us completely in a unilateral setting vis-a-vis -vis sanctions uh, against Russia. And it does not further our interests. And we would argue that it really is very important to have multilateral sanctions to be effective. There's no question. Okay. If, if I can just add- Daniel, one, then we're gonna to move to the next question. If I could just add well, one quick thing. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna say something a little bit heretical uh, now, um, but uh, I, I need to be, um, uh, a transparent with what we found in the data. Um, I was very keen also to explore whether unilateral versus multilateral is gonna make a difference when it comes to the sanctions impact. And I, I would have assumed that uh, uh, that would have been the case, at least for Russia, given that, you know, as important a trading partner the US is with Russia, the European Union is far more important um, a trading partner to Russia. To my surprise and, and complete confoundment, um, we found that uh, uh, when we looked at 
So um, first of all, uh, it, you should kind of think of a Venn diagram here. There are uh, targets that the US have targeted. Uh, there are targets that the EU have targeted. And there are, there are targets that, that both um, entities have targeted. And there's less overlap, actually, uh, uh, I thought, than, than there would be. Also, somewhat to our surprise, we found that um, it was the US sanctions uh, that were the real kicker. Um, EU sanctions by themselves didn't seem to have very much of an impact, and EU sanctions plus US sanctions didn't seem to have any additional uh, significant, uh, significant impact beyond the US sanctions themselves. I think this is an, uh, uh, because of two things. Number one, the EU sanctions, uh, um, they have sanctioned in number terms a lot more than the U.S., but they've sanctioned much more, for lack of a better word, we call them political figures. So people that don't have a significant economic or business ties um, with the U.S. or EU. So those are, you know, those are sanctionable, but they don't really have any economic impact. So, uh, um, you know, it's just, it's just visa bans and travel bans and asset freezes um, rather than actual disruptions in economic behavior. Uh, but number two, um, I think it's it's partially a fact that uh, um, uh, the U.S. has been much more um, activist about trying to enforce uh, these sanctions, particularly upon the financial communities. Um, the U.S. Treasury has not been shy about <laughs> slapping billion-dollar fines upon uh, both U.S. and uh, uh, European uh, financial institutions uh, when uh, they don't comply uh, with uh, with with U.S. sanctions policy. And so, I think that uh, U.S. Uh, um, you know companies, the private sector in general, has has. Uh, awoken to this uh, uh, and have realized that it's the it's the U.S. Uh, sanctions that they should really be um, uh, re really be worried about. But this is all in the short term. I think in the long term, again, what this is uh, what this is doing is is just going to add one more piece uh, to incentives um, by people to try and create a system uh, of. Uh, financial exchange or, or technology transfer or whatever that is sits outside of the long arm of the U.S. Uh, of the U.S. Treasury and State Departments. Uh, uh, we live in a very globalized and connected world, so that's very hard to do, but it's not impossible. So, thank, thank you, Daniel. Um, the next question comes from Iris Strauss, who is chair of the Center for War, Peace, and Peace Studies. Uh, his question is can we differentiate among sanctions and evaluate their cost benefits separately? Uh, how would you rank them? Which sanctions, for example, do more to drive Russia into China's arms? Which do more to exact the cost from Russia, et cetera? So if you could comment on, uh, any, any of the speakers could comment on the, as it were, the more successful sanctions or, or the sanctions that seem to be work uh, better uh, and Ira also asked that you uh, analyze the cost-benefit analysis for the Magnitsky sanctions, uh, general trade sanctions, and Nord Stream. So that's a lot right there. Um, at the risk of over-speaking, I can take a first stab, but then uh, uh, let Randy and, and Ambassador Pickering uh, uh, discuss more. Uh, just from a, a really quick and dirty way of doing this, um, uh, what we tried to do was we looked at the difference between the 
export value of Western companies into that Russian uh, company or that Russian sector versus how much uh, uh, they've uh, their revenues have been dropped. As I mentioned, uh, um, it's quite remarkable how much, uh, despite the very small impact in terms of uh, value added that Western services uh, uh, provides to Russian companies, it's those companies that are dependent upon Western services that have an outsized impact um, on, on sanctions. So just from a simple commercial economic cost benefit analysis, uh, any company that works in a sector that is uh, that uh, Western companies provide relatively little value added and therefore uh, presumably generate relatively little in terms of revenue gain, but has an outsized impact in terms of the disruption uh, to the Russian company um, or, or whatever target company, uh, if it loses access to that, uh, that looks like a high kind of uh, a return uh, sort of target to me. Uh, but when it comes to the broader um, uh, uh, you know, foreign policy objective of trying to change the incentive or the decision making of the Russian regime, then I think it actually um, is about which are the companies that are sensitive enough that the Russian regime decides to reallocate resources. I, I, I found this a fascinating uh, uh, kind of counterintuitive result to that. The less you see an, any economic impact of the sanctions, the more likely it is that the Russian government has diverted resources to try and protect this uh, this company. And the more it actually means that this company was probably something that the Russian government didn't want to see hurt by sanctions, or else why would they have gone out and, and tried to protect it? So there's um, a lot of these uh, companies that are in strategic lists, you know, they're considered critical for national security and defense and technology reasons. Uh, um, uh, those seem to be high value targets uh, uh, when it comes to, you know, poking at something that the Putin regime doesn't want uh, to, to see disrupted. Thanks, Daniel. Um, a question now from... Uh, Can I make a further comment? Please do, Ambassador. Yes. Yeah. Um, the interesting question here is often, uh, as well as the economic impact, is there a business impact that goes beyond that? that technology acquisition, supply chain maintenance is important. The second question is, uh, does the US now have a sufficient reach with secondary sanctions, which have been mainly tried more in Iran than elsewhere in dealing with the problem with the simple proposition Trade with Iran, you can't trade with us. Uh, trade with Iran, you can't trade in dollars. Uh, and these are enormously important questions, but where, as in the case of Iran, and with some in case of Russia, certainly I suspect China in the case of Russia, uh, the notion that we are unilaterally using a mechanism where we dominate to force upon other people uh, sanctions and then finding them or punishing them for the violation uh, has begun to raise a significant uh, commitment to pushback, uh, whether it is uh, a, a new reserve currency for the world, which is something the treasury for a very long period of time had deep concerns about. I can remember in the Clinton administration, there being almost uh, uh, entirely mobilized against anything that would threaten our role as the provider of the world's reserve country, currency. We seem to have skated by with that. But this is an interesting set of problems. Uh, I think 
less relevant for the moment, perhaps, in Russia. Uh, but I also think something we should not quickly lose sight of, particularly if, in fact, we are entering into a period where the Congress and the executive branch are each racing for some kind of goal in foreign policy where the sanctions are the key tool. Uh, you remember in the early 1940s, before Lend-Lease, Winston Churchill said, give us the tools and we will finish the job. I think we're not there yet, but we're getting into the point where the question of give us the job and we will finish the tools is something we should be cautious about. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Ambassador Pickering. Uh, the next question comes um, from Vlad Lupin, the former Moldovan ambassador to the UN. And he says, has Russia, he asked, has Russian behavior up, up to the last few years, interference in elections, support of Assad, et cetera, warrant the lifting of sanctions? So I guess this question is for Ambassador Pickering and anyone else who wants to jump in is at what point uh, do we feel that we can that we, we have accomplished or we can't do anything more with sanctions? To, and and do what are the what is the impact of removing the sanctions without having any change of behavior? Look, I think it's a very good and important question. I'm sort of existing here in a noise envelope on the one hand. I have something like a chainsaw operating on the other, a vicious dog who hates chainsaws. So uh, pardon me. All, 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 <laughs> all the hazards of Zoom calls. It's, it's okay. I think everyone's everyone's been acclimated to the occasional interruption. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, that question is extremely important. Um, and nobody that I know of, given the difficulty of removing sanctions, particularly from the US side, is advocating sanctions removal without seeking uh, to derive a serious benefit from that. Uh, sanctions are best if they pay you well when you levy them and pay you better when you take them off, uh, if you can achieve that in diplomacy. Not necessarily very easy to do that, Often the pay on going in is getting them to the table and the pay on coming out is when in effect you jointly agree the table has worked. Uh, but that in, is, is sort of where we are. And as I said in my early opening remarks, uh, Putin's deeply dug in approach to this, much of it heavily determined by two interrelated Russian objectives to be a great power again on the one hand, uh, and by being a great power again to assure, uh, if not eternal, because there is no eternal rule, but long-term rule by the current leader uh, is out there. So any movement on the part of the Russians would be for some significant advantage, probably a combination in which sanctions removal would play a role, but be not the entire piece, because we have deeply felt and very significant objectives with respect to both Crimea and Ukraine. Um, and those are things not to be wasted, although sanctions and increasing sanctions without a serious process of having uh, an engagement that looks for an answer um, is too much Nordic, tra Nordic track and not enough real diplomacy. 
Okay, the next question also kind of follow up on uh, Ambassador Pickering's remarks. Uh, it's from uh, Victor Pepard at the US Institute on Russia. And he says, what's the point of continuing sanctions related to Crimea when they will never give it up? I mean, at, at what point, you know, we, we keep the sanctions and, um, and as, as the, comment, uh, the speakers have mentioned, you know, they just become a part of the permanent part of diplomacy or, or the, the relationship and there's no incentive and no leverage or no impact that will try to remove those sanctions. So I can understand the conclusion that Crimea is particularly hard. Um, I had always thought with respect to Crimea, we should have immediately insisted in whatever way we could, or perhaps persuaded Putin uh, that he was dealing with two problems not resolved in something like the UN Charter, uh, interference in the internal affairs of another state on the one hand, uh, and self-determination on the other. And he had more cards in the second game than he had in the first game. Uh, and were he to have adopted the second game, it would have been much harder for us to protest the first game, particularly if it were done with full UN cooperation and supervision and so on. He decided he would solve the first game by having a Russia only uh, solely in-house effort and therefore not resolve it. Uh, and the longer it goes on, two things are happening. The tighter the hold, but maybe uh, the worse the public acceptance of this has become. There are reports that that's the case. So the immediate conclusion that Crimea is hopeless and will never change is too soon to, 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 to I think, agree with in this, although it does look very, very hard. But uh, we look, saw how long it took the Cold War. And if you'd been talking together with us in 1985, you might have reached the same conclusion about the Cold War. So uh, diplomacy has a kind of eternal role. Uh, often uh, bloodying one's head on a hard wall is part of it, uh, but maybe it will work. I think there's more flex and more capacity in Eastern Ukraine. And I would hope that that's something the Biden administration pays attention to. And both of them, I think sanctions can be helpful I can't believe that sanctions are the sole uh, and complete and absolute definer of a, of a successful outcome. Thanks. If, if I could just add one quick um, uh, little anecdote uh, to that. Uh, um, I think sanctions uh, also have um, a, a forgotten but still uh, important tactical as well as strategic uh, uh, objective, which is just to uh, reduce, degrade, and, and weaken uh, the sort of tactical uh, ability of the target to, you know, uh, uh, possess resources. And so as an example, um, it's been interesting to follow the example of Bank Rossiya, um, which was a private bank um, uh, that, uh, that reportedly uh, uh, held a lot of President Putin and a lot of his cronies' uh, personal assets. Uh, um, 
one week after uh, they get sanctioned, they get a very juicy government contract. And a few months after they get sanctioned, Bank Russia announces that they'll be the new bank to uh, open commercial uh, retail uh, banking branches uh, in Crimea uh, to make up for um, uh, for um, uh, other, dang, uh, other banks uh, that had uh, their operations disrupted. So there's this weird... Um, uh, uh, a relationship between a lot of these uh, companies, uh, and they often are pursuing uh, uh, non-commercial objectives as well. I mean, Bank Russia came out in public. The CEO said, "Look, we're not going into Crimea because it makes commercial sense. We're doing this uh, out of solidarity with uh, uh, with the Putin regime." Um, and so, uh, you know, maintaining sanctions on that to, to at least weaken the ability. Um, uh, of these actors uh, to operate uh, in, in Crimea or, you know, uh, sell arms to separatists in Ukraine or whatever um, is still, I think, uh, important. Thanks, Daniel. Um, Randy, just to kind of bring you back into the conversation, in terms of the U.S.-Russia Business Council and your members, um, have they had a united front against sanctions? Uh, have they stuck around? Uh, in terms of trying to still do business? Or are these sanctions really discouraging uh, U.S. business? And as you said, has, has U.S. business been hurt uh, because other companies that are not under U.S. sanctions can just jump in and exploit this market? So thanks for the question, Will. Um, a little disconcerting to, to think that, that our, our companies have, have jumped ship. In fact, no. Um, none of our companies have, have left the market um, with respect to, to the sanctions. Um, it's, it has been a united front. I think there is the understanding of the, the impact and the, and, the, and the trouble that um, these sanctions cause. And in terms of trying to educate, I, I will tell you, um, U.S. companies have been consistent across the board and, and active across sectors in terms of vocalizing with members of Congress and um, staff um, regarding these sanctions and with the administration across agencies. Um, we, we have a very active um, uh, membership in that sense. So I would say that <clears throat> they have been, they've been active. They have not pulled away from the market. Of course, you know, everybody, each co companies have different risk assessments and each company is different in terms of how they view the market. But um, I think, you know, what, what companies are, are managing are the, the restrictions and, and complying with the sanctions regime as it's put in place um, and as it develops and evolves, but also addressing increasingly the import substitution and procurement policies of the Russian government and being challenged by that. But they in fact have not turned away from Russia for the reasons I've, I've talked about earlier, that it is a key market in terms of their global competitiveness, that it is an interesting market for the long-term and they plan to continue. Thanks, Randy. Uh, a follow-up question specifically on import substitution from Andy Cattell, uh, former Moscow and UN correspondent for the Associated Press. His question, can you discuss whether Russia's import substitution has effectively blunted some of the sanctions? There are some competing articles in the Russian press today, whereas some uh, government agency said that they had um, they had survived import substitution, it had been, uh, it had been a success. Uh, while another article said it had actually uh, not done what they had, what, what it had intended. So any comments on the impact of import substitution? 
I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? I didn't understand with government or, or business that you're, you're... Yeah, Russia's, just the effectiveness of the import substitution strategy uh, and whether it has blunted some of the sanctions. Uh, blunted some of the sanctions. Yes. Um, well, I mean, the, the sanctions are, are, are restrictive in terms of the ability to do business with Russian entities. So um, whether you're operating in, in the market locally or from afar, it, it has the same impact. I'm not quite sure that the, the intent of that question there. But I mean, clearly, Russian, Russia's import substitution policies, each company, again, it, these are taken as business decisions. It's not, they, I don't think that you can put the sanctions into that equation for the reason I just said. The idea of the import substitution is that you have to look at the market and determine if that makes sense for your global supply chains. In the healthcare industry and medical technologies, for example, it often does not make sense in to, to do import substitution, but in other areas it might. And it also, it always depends on the terms and conditions that are being offered. Um, there have been you know, special investment contracts. We have new. We're now looking at investor protection um, agreements that are that are being offered. And I think companies are making their decisions based on the terms being offered. Okay. Okay. So we have one last question here from uh, Michael Corbin, senior trade specialist at the U.S. Department of Commerce, and he asks. He's asked. I would. I would think. It would not be advisable to impose sanctions that impact the average population's way of life. However, it appears that with Russia, we have impacted the Russian populace with our sanctions. What does the panel, panel feel about this in general and long term in terms of both geopolitics and commercial access? So is it the goal to kind of affect the life of the average Russian citizen? Is that advisable or were we trying to go after the oligarchs and the government? And to what extent is the average Russian collateral damage? And to what extent is that counterproductive when we, when the average Russian citizen, citizen is worse off uh, after a sanctions regime? William, the traditional piece has been to avoid what has been termed humanitarian trade and, and, and relief food and medicine, medical technology, all the related items. And this has generally been widely enough observed that people have given it credit for becoming part of international law. Uh, on the other hand, uh, while the US has technically respected that in a place like Iran, uh, they have used the cumbersome aspects of financial sanctions almost totally to remove it from having any real value. And there is a psychological problem that goes even worse, which is the very heavy fines for banks who in one way or another have sought uh, to skate a little bit close to the US view of what's permissible here and therefore left an a large envelope of uncertainty that banks will comply with because they don't want to venture into the danger zone and the boundaries of the danger zone are not made crystal clear. Uh, I don't know how much of that has operated in Russia, but it is a part and, and parcel of a sanctions regime. Uh, and that fundamental piece of way of life uh, should be, I suppose, protected 
but there are many other things that people depend upon which are not food and medicine. Uh, and they can be seen as affecting the quality of life, if we can phrase it that way. Um, and often foreign governments who levy sanctions believe if they can only excite the public about the impact of the sanctions upon them, they will take it out on the nearest government to hand, which is their own government. And we've seen over the history of sanctions, I think basically, if not the bankruptcy of that conclusion, a good bit of the failure of that conclusion to move it into the field of viable political action. Uh, and it does in many ways build up what I would call the reverse demonology piece that uh, foreign citizens know very well that it's not their own government that directly is affecting their ability to get peanuts or Mars bars or the US wonderful caviar or whatever it is, Russian aluminum. Uh, so uh, I think this is a very interesting subject. I would suspect that somewhere there are doctoral theses out there on this subject my general impression has been that the downside of that is more often worse than the upside if the upside is finding a way to influence a foreign government. I, I may be wrong, but I think that one can only say the, um, uh, the assumed impact of what that is may be different than what the data say, but in the absence of the data, the assumption is pretty much that governments will venture into this willingly because the domestic audience that they're trying to please in their own country favors it, uh, but it doesn't help in one way or another in getting out of the long-term problem that may have generated the interest in sanctions in the first place. Thanks very much. Daniel, um, and we're, coming, we're coming to the end, so uh, quick. Yeah, uh, just in, in quick 20 comment. seconds, um, I'll just quickly say that uh, um, I, I you know, one could easily say, look, you know, if you sanction a target because you're trying to avoid hurting, um, you know, an ordinary Russian citizen, but then the Russian government takes taxpayer money to bail that sanctioned target out, and the taxpayer gets hurt anyways, then what's the point of targeted sanctions? It's easy to kind of fall into that, but I, I take um, a slightly different view because at the very least, it's the Russian government that has decided to take the money away from the taxpayer, um, you know, by raiding its pension fund or, 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 or letting the ruble depreciate or whatever um, to, to bail out that company. But there's an extra, therefore, uh, importance um, upon uh, the U.S. State Department uh, and, and just more generally the U.S. And, and the international community to highlight to the Russian people that it's your government that is uh, taking your own money uh, to bail out uh, these guys and not, and not the U.S. itself. So there's a, there's a key communication and, and optical diplomacy aspect alongside this economic tool. Thanks, Daniel. Um, we've come to a close, but I'll ask one, one last question and quick, quick answers for everybody. Uh, do you foresee a change uh, of our sanctions policy in the upcoming Biden administration? Or is this the default policy that people now rely on? So quick answers, and then we'll have to end here. I would begin by saying, I'm not sure in all honesty, but it is possible that the Biden administration will try to do more 
to pull the allies together around the conversion of the sanctions regime into the production of some kind of answer to the problems that have given rise to it more than the, than the last administration has. Whether they'll be successful is a different question. You didn't ask me, but I think it'll be very hard. And, uh, you know, I would just say that it is, I think we are entering uncertain territory and a lot, I think, in terms of what happens going forward will depend on Russia and its actions and how, how it's performing on the global stage. But, you know, I think initially there is the possibility we could see a shift maybe maybe away from Congress back to the executive branch in terms of where sanctions policy is really being implemented and developed. But I wouldn't put all of my money on that. Where's all your money going, Daniel? And then uh, really quickly, um, uh, I, I don't see any particular you know, change in the ground uh, when it comes to the sanctions limitation, given the you know, recent Russian uh, regime behavior. But I would very much like to see more infrastructure around sanctions policy being developed behind the background, as Ambassador Pickering was saying, uh, you know, uh, could we need some kind of better coordination, more wargaming, more kind of, you know, uh, 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 process, uh, both and, and transparent process uh, uh, behind this, rather than just kind of coming out from the fevered imaginations of, of uh, uh, congressional staff and or, uh, <laughs> and or executive officials. Well, with that, uh, I want to thank all of our speakers uh, for really just a very informative and interesting discussion on sanctions. Obviously, this is an issue that is not going away anytime soon, but uh, I think we now have an excellent perspective in order to follow and follow the debate and monitor what uh, comes next. So I want to again thank all of our speakers, um, and I look forward to uh, having and, and the audience and I look forward to you joining us in future Kennan Institute events. Thanks so much. Thank you, Will. Thank you. Thank you.